Mark Trahan put it best at our conference when he said, you know, the road to net zero runs through Indigenous land because Canada will not meet its net zero targets if Indigenous people are not included as partners and co-developers of uh, Canada's net zero strategy. Welcome to The Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. After a summer hiatus, this is episode 064, number 64 of The Flux Capacitor. I'm taking stock following a focus for more than a year on the net zero challenge. Some of the conclusions I've drawn from these conversations? Well, first, that an all-of-the-above approach to non-emitting electricity will be required. Second, hydrogen will eventually be a big part of our energy future. Third, we'll need an effective international emissions trading regime. And last, but certainly not least, few, if any, major projects will move forward in the future without enduring partnerships with Indigenous peoples. This episode is a first crack at that fourth issue. With my guest today, I'm Nilo Edwards, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. Nilo joined me to chat about the work of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition and some specific projects the coalition has been supporting in the electricity space. We discussed the urgency and complexity of addressing economic reconciliation, the role the coalition plays in building enduring capacity, and the significance of UNDRIP becoming Canadian law. We also take a tangent to chat about policymaking in Ottawa and the sometimes important role played by Senate committees, reflecting on Nilo's time as a staffer on Parliament Hill. And we close our conversation with Nilo's two book recommendations to add to the Flux Capacitor Book Club list. Here is my conversation with Nilo Edwards, recorded on Zoom in early September 2022. Nilo, I'm delighted that you're you're on the podcast. We've been talking about this for a little while, and our schedules have finally lined up. So welcome to welcome to the Flux Capacitor. <laughs> Great to be here, Francis. Thanks for having me. So maybe if we could start off for the listener a little bit about what is the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. Uh, sure, happy to talk about that. I just want to first. Uh, Acknowledge that it's a beautiful day here in Coast Salish territory in Vancouver, the unceded traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, uh, where we're privileged to have an office. Um, the First Nations Major Projects Coalition is a community-led organization by First Nations for First Nations. Uh, it was established officially as a not-for-profit society early in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're celebrating our fifth anniversary as an organization uh, this year. Uh, however, uh, it did take a little bit longer than just five years to establish. 
Right. Uh, we went through a nascent uh, period where uh, important and foundational to the organization, uh, the members, the constituting members of uh, Major Projects Coalition wanted to ensure that there was community support for the idea before it got off the ground. Mm -hmm. And I think really, Francis, that's foundational to the way that we operate today, uh, where our governance is, is rooted in the communities who become members, they mm -hmm. appoint the board. Uh, I you know, have the honor of working for them uh, and have, um, you know, really for, for the last 10 years, if you include the, the development period right. uh, of the organization, we started out with 11 members in Northern British Columbia. Mm -hmm. and, and this was a part of a recognition by uh, the community leadership at the time that uh, First Nations required a organization that was trusted uh, by them to serve their needs in terms of making informed business decisions mm -hmm. about development proposals and economic opportunities uh, that are and, and were and currently proposed mm -hmm. uh, for traditional territories. Uh, so we, uh, there was a, a team of us uh, first sponsored uh, through the First Nations Financial Management Board okay. uh, that worked with um, a group of communities to establish the governance and operational principles of the organization. Mm -hmm. And then in 2017, uh, we had a critical, critical mass of about 23 communities that made the informed decision to establish it as a not-for-profit society. Right. Uh, today, we are approaching 100 members across the country, in seven provinces and territories. Mm -hmm. uh, we are active in providing capacity support to eight major projects across the country, uh, representing a combined total capital investment of north of $20 billion. Wow. Uh, so these are not small projects. Uh, they are significant uh, to not only First Nations, but to the economy of Canada. And uh, all of the projects that we are involved in have significant uh, economic benefits mm -hmm. uh, for our members, including equity, participation, and ownership. Right. Um, but it, it doesn't stop there. Uh, we take a holistic view mm -hmm. of project development to ensure that community interests are at the forefront of, of project negotiations, uh, governance, and, and the overall life cycle of projects that are proposed for territory. So that means not only advising on the economic participation, mm -hmm. but also on the environmental and regulatory considerations, including ensuring that our members have the opportunity to mitigate impacts to the land, yep. protect culturally and, and community significant sites and to ensure that, you know, indigenous traditional knowledge, cultural values are at the forefront of negotiations so that we can get to a place where uh, nations can be proud of the deals that they negotiate with the private sector <laughs> and that those deals ultimately have community buy-in and reflect the values and the interests of First Nations who are negotiating with the private sector. So that 
that is our core mandate, uh, Francis, <laughs> as an organization. We do this as a not-for-profit. Yep. And we are truly not-for-profit in the sense that we do not charge for our services. Okay. And we do not take a financial interest in the business deals that we advise on. And, and that is directly tied to our independence and impartiality, not having a horse in the race or, mm. or a vested mm -hmm. interest. Mm -hmm. And we're able to do this because we have funding support uh, from various uh, government agencies at the provincial and federal levels. Uh, Natural Resources Canada is by far our biggest funder, um, and they just uh, made another investment in our organization of, of $13.5 million over the next five years, which we're very appreciative of. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the government of Canada in particular uh, sees the value uh, that the coalition provides in terms of uh, not only helping to advance uh, First Nation participation uh, in a commercial sense in project development, but also providing an outlet for uh, some of the principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People right. to be uh, operationalized through free, prior, and informed business decisions made by First Nations with our support. Um, we also have a sustaining partners program mm -hmm. uh, where we have invited uh, select private sector partners uh, to join the program where we are utilizing our knowledge, know-how, and the interactions with our members to ensure that their corporate priorities reflect the true value and consideration of Indigenous people uh, so that um, they can be stronger corporate partners in terms <laughs> of economic and social reconciliation in the business that they do. So through that program, we're able to not only contribute uh, to our members' interests, but help Corporate Canada become better citizens when it comes to uh, really diving in with both feet on, on economic reconciliation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, long-winded answer to your question, but I, I think it's important that your, your listeners fully understand uh, what the organization is about and, and who we are. That's great. I, I want to unpack a, a number of the things that you raised there, but maybe first, uh, how about a little bit about you, Nilo? How, what was your journey? Um, I know you've been, you know, you've been involved in this for, for a decade, but how did you come to be uh, involved in this? Was this something that was uh, like a, a, an academic pursuit? Is this something that, that on, uh, and I always make the joke when, when you were a kid on the grade school, in grade school in the, in the schoolyard, was this something you dreamed of doing? Uh, so how did you, how did you get to, to this role? Uh, th thanks for asking. Um, I, I was uh, born in, in a place called Alert Bay on mm -hmm. the uh, northeast coast of, uh, of Vancouver Island, the uh, traditional territory of the Namagus First Nation. And I grew up in a commercial fishing village uh, mm -hmm. called Sointula, um, right next door to Alert Bay. And uh, the, my home community was set up on uh, sort of utopian ideals where it was a collective society and we all looked out for, uh, for each other's interests. And, and so that sort of shaped my worldview in, in some sense of uh, 
you know what uh, what what is what is right, I guess, in in, in mm-hmm. the world in in some sense. And uh, mm. and, and after uh, after leaving home, um, wound up in in Ottawa for for university. Mm-hmm and uh, started working on Parliament Hill at the time when uh, some First Nations-led legislation was going through Parliament, uh, the uh, First Nations Fiscal and Statistical Management Act, the um, uh, Commercial and Industrial Development Act, and and, and a bunch of different uh, pieces of legislation that were designed to move First Nations out from under the Indian Act uh, from an economic sense and and toward uh, self-determination. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well, there were other initiatives uh, such as modern day treaties going through Parliament, and I wound up working with the Standing Senate Committee on Aboriginal okay. Peoples. Okay, and, right. And and I spent about seven or eight years with the committee um, as an advisor to the chairman at the time, uh, mm-hmm. former Senator Jerry Saint Germain. Mm-hmm. And uh, through that experience, um, I, I learned quite a bit that uh, Parliament could operate in a nonpartisan way and look at issues for what they were. And mm-hmm. certainly that particular committee of the Senate did during that time. And uh, the Senator's office became a uh, sort of a gathering point for First Nations across the country who had particular issues that they were trying to get through, uh, you know, uh, Indigenous Services Canada or Crown Indigenous Relations, as we yeah. know it today, right. um, various different issues. And, and so working there uh, with the Senator in that capacity um, gave me a, a pretty broad understanding of some of the issues that needed mm-hmm. to be advanced across the country and uh, you know some of the new innovations to correct the economic and social gaps faced by First Nations, um, including through the uh, fiscal institutions that were set up, uh, like the Financial Management Board, the Tax Commission, the, mm-hmm. the Finance Authority. And, and so um, I worked there uh, until the chairman of the committee uh, retired, and and after his retirement, um, uh, Harold Calla, who is still the executive chairman of the First Nations Financial Management Board, asked me to come and work at uh, the, uh, the the board with him, and uh, we worked on particular issues related to First Nations access to capital. Uh, for investment in major resource projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a catalyst or a genesis project at the time called the Pacific Trails Pipeline where 16 First Nations um, negotiated an equity stake with the proponent, went out right. to the capital markets and tried to get financing only to be told that the rate of interest on the equity style debt would be much higher than the rate of return on the project. So they had to sell their equity interest for cash payment. Mm. And uh, the leadership at the time, some of the leadership that was involved in that particular deal came to the financial management board and asked, you know, can you help us through your mandate 
mm. ensure that this doesn't happen again and that we can become owners and partners in the projects that are proposed for our territories. Right. And, and so uh, I got involved in some of the initial work mm-hmm. with various people um, at the time, uh, and he was former Senator St. Germain at that time, uh, decided that he would volunteer his time to help get this initiative off the ground uh, <laughs> with Harold and others. And, and so uh, the, the Financial Management Board, as I um, mentioned earlier, became the sponsoring organization uh, in the creation of the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. We are now um, completely independent of the Financial Management Board, but during <laughs> that time, um, I was asked to participate with the leadership in, in designing the governance and the organizational principles and mandate mm-hmm. uh, of the Major Projects Coalition. And I was asked to serve as interim executive director by the leadership um, back in uh, late 2016, 2017, when we were you know, getting it ready to become a not-for-profit society. And I, I didn't think I'd stick around more than, <laughs> more than six months right uh but it just it just snowballed and you know i think we've uh we've built a good organization uh that um you know focuses on ensuring our members have the tools to make decisions first and foremost we're very we're very lean administratively mm-hmm. uh, there, there's not despite being a national organization We've we've had a strategy of keeping the overhead low, right, and uh, trying to produce results uh, for our members. And I think we have, and I, uh, you know, particularly in the electricity space, mm-hmm. I want to talk about a few things a little bit later on in this conversation. But you know, that's a little bit about me, and 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 how I, you know, got involved and. In, you know, I it, it was it was relatively organic, if I could characterize mm-hmm. it uh, mm-hmm. that way, Francis. And you know, I'm I'm pleased to be here. And one of the one of the aspects of the job I enjoy most is is getting out in our member communities and right. and interacting with with our members and making sure that the organization continues to meet their expectations. Because as a grassroots uh, First Nations-led organization, you know, that that is fundamentally important to us. And, and so we do that in a variety of different ways. Yeah. Hey, I want to I want to get into some of the details on on some of the projects that, that you're working on. But, you know, one of the one of the things that, that occurred to me when you were talking was the bit of a tangent here um, in terms of getting things done. And you've spent time here in Ottawa. I think I think, uh, I think people um, not uh, intimately familiar with how the government works would be surprised that um, Senate Senate committees uh, can actually be effective. Um, and, and, you know, this is a conversation I've had with somebody else in the past. You know, and, and you mentioned um, you know the 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 ability to 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 be nonpartisan and actually move things forward is something that I think one sees more frequently, frankly, in Senate committees than you do in House committees. And I, I think people would find that a little bit surprising because I think a lot of people have a perception of the Senate as, as sort of the, you know, a, um, a spare tire that you keep in the trunk and isn't particularly useful. But it sounds as though you, like like a number of other people that have spent time in government, have discovered that, that at least at the Senate and Senate committees, there is a 
a, a, an important role that sometimes is played there. It, very much so. And, you know, unlike the House of Commons, um, Senate committee studies can go on yeah. uh, for some time and they, they can even, in some sense, transcend uh, parliament. Yes, right. And I, I think, too, um, you know, it, it also depends on the composition of the committee. And during that time uh, that I was there, you know, you had, I would say, subject matter experts in their own right, uh, like Senator Lillian Dick, okay. Senator Dennis Patterson, uh, Senator um, Nick Sibiston from the Northwest Territories, who were who were Indigenous people themselves, and, mm -hmm. and Senator Patterson is still there. And, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, Senator St. Germain, to his credit, um, wanted everybody to work together, that right. that partisanship didn't matter. Yeah. And that at times we did um, things that were unpopular with the government because <laughs> we knew the constituency uh, indigenous people across Canada needed a platform uh, that was effective to get to get their issues addressed. And, yeah. and so to the extent that we could, um, you know, it was the committee's prerogative to use that uh, their sessions to, to be that platform. And, you know, we we were able to raise some significant issues. Some issues got mm -hmm. dealt with. Some issues did not. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that that speaks to if you use it right, the Senate can be an effective tool. Yeah. Um, you, you know, particularly when you have people that understand the issues in, intimately, as, as we did when, when that particular committee was, was constituted. Yeah. All right. So on a, a number of previous podcasts, uh, uh, I've had people talking about um, the net zero future, um, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the, the the government's desire to see a net zero electricity grid by by 2035. Um, and one of the conclusions that I've come to is the only way that we're going to get anywhere near some of those targets is if, uh, you know, we pursue an all of the above approach to this, um, you know, every opportunity for a non-emitting electricity generation needs to be pursued. Um, and, and that, of course, leads to the conversation about, well, uh, a number of these projects are, are on Indigenous uh, indigenous land. Um, so maybe can you talk a little bit about some of the the more um, interesting projects that have been happening in the electricity space? I mean, you said you've got you've got eight major projects that that uh, you know are already already uh, moving forward, uh, roughly twenty billion dollars. Um, what are some of the ones that are kind of in the electricity space? Well, I, I think first and foremost, um, Mark Trahan, who's the editor of, of Indian Country Today. Mm -hmm. out of the United States, but but covers issues affecting Indigenous people really globally, put it best at our conference when he said, you know, the road to net zero runs through Indigenous lands. Yes. And and we're seeing that. And I think the, the energy transition, the electrification of, of, of Canada, the redevelopment of the grid uh, and, and generation projects, um, can and are being led by Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. 
despite the fact that a lot of regulatory um, policies and approaches do not favor indigenous participation. And, and that's something that we are working through as an organization in the jurisdictions that we operate to ensure that um, those regulations are changed, mm-hmm. that they're flexible, because Canada will not meet its net zero targets if Indigenous people are not included as partners right. and co-developers of uh, Canada's net zero strategy. Mm-hmm. And to, to further articulate this point, just across our own project portfolio, you know, we're pleased to be providing capacity to support to projects like Tutaka Geothermal, uh, that is owned 100% by Fort Nelson First Nation. Mm-hmm. It is the only 100% owned Indigenous geothermal project of its size in Canada. Um, 15 to 20 megawatts of electricity using an area called the Clark Lake Basin mm-hmm. that was a former uh, liquefied natural gas um, field. Uh, so, you know, tra- transitioning from fossil fuels to something else, I think uh, the Tutaka project is um, a, a very good example of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, food security is also uh, an issue that's uh, important to our members. And I know Fort Nelson plans to harness the heat from the facility okay. uh, for commercial greenhouses so that they can improve the quality of food uh, in the north for their members and and for the rest of the uh, the community that surrounds them. Hmm. Um, we also have um, examples of how uh, the mining industry is is moving toward net zero through electrification. Mm-hmm. Um, our members uh, near uh, Vanderhoof, uh, BC, have uh, the, have the opportunity to con- construct and potentially own a transmission line that is going to a proposed gold mine that is operating uh, in mm-hmm. their territories. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, for um, First Nations, oftentimes uh, investing in mining related infrastructure, is is proves better economics than investing in the mine itself okay um so we see an example of that here that's not always the case but Mm -hmm. in some cases it is and in this particular one i think that's uh that's the approach that the community is is taking um and then uh elsewhere in the country uh we're, we're getting involved in a uh a relatively nascent uh project around hydrogen Mm-hmm. on the Sunshine Coast with one of our members. Um, there's a huge electricity component to that because okay. the electrolyzer, of course, takes uh, takes a lot of, um, of, of electricity to operate. Gotcha. Um, moving into central Canada, and this is one of the, uh, the focus points I, I want to articulate in this point of the conversation, is that uh, we have assisted our members at Chippewas of the Thames and Amgenon First Nations in southwestern Ontario mm-hmm. um, in negotiating a precedent-setting set- equity deal with Hydro One, in which Hydro One will provide 50% equity uh, to the nations impacted 
by the Chatham to Lakeshore project. There's five of them we happen to offer, uh, we happen to represent uh, two or supporting two in negotiating this deal. Um, uh, that's significant mm -hmm. um, because it, it's, I think, a recognition by Hydro One that economic reconciliation is important to their corporation. Right. And it's also significant because Hydro One, I think, and you know, not to speculate on their behalf, but is looking at the broader net zero future and the demand for electricity. And, and I think they realize that, you know, the infrastructure requirement to meet those demands is going to impact treaty mm -hmm. lands and other mm -hmm. indigenous people. Yeah. Um, so they're taking a very progressive approach. Mm -hmm. And um, it, you know, it's it's been our experience that they're uh, they're listening uh, sincerely to the concerns that our members are raising, and wanting to do a new kind of business deal. And I think this business deal is a um, certainly a benchmark for other utilities across Canada mm. um, to to emulate. Mm -hmm. And and I know for a number that's going to cause their corporate development department to go back to the drawing board but mm. you know that mm -hmm. is okay i don't think you know the private sector or or really crown corporations in the case of uh, provinces like bc and saskatchewan um need to be frightened or worried by that uh because at the end of the day i think everybody has to remember that uh, first nations represent some of the best business partners that you could ever find in mm. terms of uh, having a values-driven approach to project development and, and being a, a good partner. And that's been our experience at the Major Projects Coalition, where our members have taken a very sincere approach uh, to project development. And, and you're going to see that, I think, moving forward in the electricity sector more and more. Uh, I do want to just end on this point by talking about our, our members in Newfoundland and Labrador. And I had the uh, uh, the opportunity uh, at their request at Miabakeg First Nation uh, mm -hmm. to go out to the Hydrogen Expo and, and support them in, in Stephenville, Newfoundland uh, the other week when the Prime Minister and the German Chancellor uh, signed the, the MOU between Canada and Germany on hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are impacted by three potential projects uh, where the proponents uh, have recognized and really want an Indigenous-led partnership on, on hydrogen development in Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, you have the, uh, the opportunity for electricity to play a huge role, whether that's um, offshore wind or um, you know some other form of uh, of electricity generation in the production of hydrogen, mm -hmm. and, and so you know moving forward on this, um, FNMPC has a very strong convening power that you know you saw in our conference this past April when you were yep. out in Vancouver. Yep. Uh, we are doing this again on the 24th and 25th of April, 2023, once again at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver. And, and this, this year, 
we're, we're presenting a conference on the values-driven economy, how indigenous values are shaping business deals across the country, mm-hmm. and, and really getting into the nitty-gritty of, of the deal-making, not, not so much conceptual on, on why it's necessary, but um, practical in the sense of how these deals have been done mm-hmm. and, and the role that indigenous people are, are playing in shaping the deal and you know what what impact does that have on them what impact does it have on the projects financing on the proponents view of the world that sort of thing so we're going to be facilitating very frank and open discussion around these points uh, not only with first nations here in canada but also um, drawing international examples from the United States, from uh, from other countries like New Zealand and Australia, where this mm-hmm. is also happening, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can have a, a sharing of knowledge, a transfer of knowledge and best practices, and that um, hopefully people will leave the forum um, knowing something that they didn't know before they arrived. Right. Hey, you'd mentioned uh, UNDRIP, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and uh, FPIC, Free and Prior Informed Consent. Um, We do like acronyms, but um, we we now have uh, federal legislation that that enshrines UNDRIP in in Canadian law. I'd be interested to to get a sense of, of, of how you view that. Was that simply symbolic, or is that that legal change going to be significant over time? Well, I, I guess I, I'd start by, by saying, and, and, you know, I am sharing with you what I have heard our members tell me. Okay. And, and, and I think that's important because, you know, un, UNDRIP, um, from what I have heard our members say, is a, a tool that is to be interpreted by the nations who are using it. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that basis, I think um, the government of Canada has set certain expectations by adopting the legislation. I think it's a, a good move, a needed move. Um, through the, the coalition, I, I guess one could say that we were on the, the leading edge of this in terms of the fact that we were already using the principles of UNDRIP as a, as a guiding light for some of the services that we provided prior to, you know, governments even considering adoption. Okay. And, and so I think a lot of what we do in practice as an organization and the services that we provide to our members uh, really speaks to how the principles of free prior and informed consent can be operationalized in a business setting mm-hmm. in a way that is structured, that follows um, the expectations of Indigenous people who are using it and developing an understanding amongst private sector proponents and project financiers as to what that means. And and so, for example, when we get involved in a project at the request of our members, a lot of times we will provide structuring advice, corporate governance advice, Mm 
so that um, First Nations, whether they'd be singular or a group that has aggregated around a linear project, such as a transmission line, right, uh, have a basis of making and executing corporate decisions that mm-hmm. reflect the priorities of their communities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are not making decisions on behalf of them. We are simply helping them construct the entity that will make decisions uh, instructed by them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I'm driving at here is that, you know, depending on how the principles of free prior and informed consent are used, uh, they can provide, you know, the principles of the declaration can provide a lot of certainty to uh, and clarity to um, business negotiations. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, our, our example, our organization is doing it in a certain way. Right. And, and I think, you know, um, there, there hasn't been a lot of concern on, on the side of proponents that are dealing with our members about whether or not, you know, um, they're, they're going to wind up with a result at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, it is up to First Nations to decide if a project is right for them. And sometimes it's not right. Sometimes project planning has to be tweaked. Sometimes the project doesn't go, doesn't proceed. But what we are focused on is making sure that whatever the outcome is, that there's an informed decision at the end of the day. Right. And, you know, in the view of our members and and the way in which we operate, which is on a non-political basis, you can take the articles of of the declaration and apply them to your business practices in a way (laughs) that produces an outcome. And um, I, I think that's a story that needs to be focused on a little bit more because the, the legislation uh, and uh, the, the declaration itself, um, standing alone, doesn't provide a lot of direction. But when you start to operationalize it at the community level, mm-hmm. that's when you start to see the real impact of of what it can provide and in our in the case of our members it's been very positive and Mm -hmm. and so if it's done right in terms of you know having a basis upon which decisions can be made then it's a very helpful tool and and i think ultimately it's up to first nations at the end of the day to decide how they want to use it Mm -hmm. okay so if we um, project into the future, this new, um, you know, holistic view of projects that, that you, you know, your, your organization has been bringing forward, um, success looks like what? I mean, you've been fairly successful already. You've, you've, you've grown by a factor of 10. Um, but, but what is, what does success look like if, if a decade from now we look back uh, at the coalition um, what would, uh, you know, what would you say, uh, ticks the box of, yeah, we, 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 uh, we have been successful. Um, what would that look like to you? Full and meaningful participation of indigenous people in the economy of Canada. Uh, and, and that can be achieved a number of ways, but it will take investments in capacity, mm-hmm. um, 
capacity is a spectrum. And, and you know, you have some very high performing uh, First Nations out there that are, are used to doing deals with the private sector. Right. That have their own decision making process already set up around the environment. They've done land and resource planning. Their membership is fully engaged. And they are realizing self-determination. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the case for everyone. Um, and many of our members that have joined the organization have joined because they recognize they have certain capacity gaps. And uh, they have called on us to, to help them fill those gaps. So again, informed decisions can be made. Um, and, and we're seeing results, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in all of our deals, we make sure that there's a knowledge transfer that happens between our technicians mm-hmm. and the communities so that at the end of the day, we're not just going in and providing a service. And then when we leave, the knowledge leaves with us. Right. We are attempting as much as we can to train the people in the community and, and to identify and help the community fill their own capacity gaps so that they can stand on their own mm-hmm. um, at, at the end of the day. And, and maybe in you know a couple of decades, there won't be a need for our organization because people are standing uh, on their own. And, and that would be a great thing to see. But in the meantime, I, I think what everybody needs to appreciate uh, your listeners um, is that capacity among communities is on a spectrum. There are mm-hmm. low capacity mm-hmm. and then there's the other end where I, I've already described. Mm-hmm. And, and so in order for everyone to get to the destination where we want to be, we have to raise the level of, of capacity and that takes investment by the private sector. Right. It takes investment by government. And, uh, and I think it, you know, and we're seeing this, it, it takes some organization uh, by our members to, um, you know, request it and, and, and really want to implement it in their business practices. The other thing that needs to happen, and I know there's some movement around this now, and, and we've been certainly advocating for this ever since we got started. And it's really a genesis issue mm-hmm. uh, or a legacy issue for the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. And that is affordable access to capital for mm-hmm. equity investment by Indigenous people who choose to become partners in major mm-hmm. projects with the private sector. Um, it, our, our view of this is that everyone involved has a stake in making sure that um, affordable capital can be made available. Uh, Government has a role to play here, both Mm -hmm. at the provincial and federal levels. And we've seen provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario address this with uh, loan guarantee programs and, and direct financing support in some cases. Uh, but there needs to be a national strategy around access to capital. Okay, the national, a national a, strategy. Okay, a, a national strategy. Yeah. And the federal government has a role to play in this. Yeah, and I'm not talking about you know supporting projects that are not economically viable. I'm talking about supporting commercially viable business deals that have an opportunity to generate wealth for First Nations who decide to partner in them. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there's a couple of things that need to come into play. Uh, for equity deals to exist, there has to be a willing buyer and a willing seller. Right. Um, willing seller on the part of the private sector, in our view, looks like a corporation who is willing to understand the uniqueness of their First Nations partners mm-hmm. and design, co-design a business deal that addresses those unique um, elements and provides a avenue for um, risk to be reduced on the side of the First Nation mm-hmm. and returns to be maximized, you know, not discounting as well all of the other environmental and social considerations that come along with it, but on a access to capital perspective, uh, I think the private sector has to be willing to take stock of what credit enhancements can they provide to First Nations so that they can successfully transact and financially close on a project opportunity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've received feedback from capital markets that suggest that, um, you know, access to capital continues to be a challenge for First Nations because many communities do not have sufficient risk capital to be placed to uh, affect a good interest rate. It's kind of like going to the bank and asking for a mortgage and not having a down payment. It doesn't work. Gotcha. So there's a role to play in terms of advancing economic reconciliation where where the government at the federal level, and some cases at the provincial level, mm-hmm. should be able to provide that security uh, via a loan guarantee or direct loan support mm. uh, at a level sufficient to maximize returns for First Nations and cause a scenario where we are able to crowd in uh, market capital mm. into the deal in an effective way. Um, this, I believe, is a policy that would need to be around, you know, for a interim period of time. That length, I, I, I'm not prepared to speculate on, but what <laughs> will happen is a transfer of wealth. And eventually, uh, First Nations who participate in projects will get to a point where they will have their own risk capital. And they will be able to finance their own participation without um, third-party financing support. So in terms of the question you originally asked me of where do we need to get to go and what does success look like? Mm -hmm. Success looks like full participation of Indigenous people in the economy of Canada in order to get there, some fundamental things like uh, affordable access to capital have to be addressed. Mm And uh, are, are you finding um, uh, uh, an audience for uh, these kinds of messages at the federal level? Is there yes. okay? Okay. Um, at first, we weren't. Yeah. Um, you know, this has been, as I say, a legacy issue that you know I have worked on and uh, helped support our members in working on over the last ten or so years. Mm. Um. I think in part, and, you know, we never want to overplay our hand, but the major projects coalition has been able to bring an argument to government that is tied to real-time project examples. Mm. 
And we've been able to say, you know, you have made commitments around reconciliation. This is a huge issue for economic reconciliation. Are you prepared to make good on your statements so that we can realize uh, real results? Mm -hmm. and, and I think by demonstrating the impact uh, using real-time project examples of, of what this means, um, we've been able to affect some change in, in view and, and, and some action in terms of uh, advancing these issues at the federal level. And, and I, I think it's also important for your listeners to you know, understand um, the view of our members on this and how they may use the transfer of wealth that will occur. Um, and you know, again, I'm repeating what I've seen and what I've heard hmm. uh, directly from them. You know, this is about correcting uh, some some major deficiencies in the standard of living. Right. You know, it's about being able to deliver housing. It's about being able to fund uh, meaningfully uh, social programs for those who need it hmm. in the communities, and it's about having wealth in order to diversify local economies so that they can stand the test of time and ultimately support the self-determination needs of our members who really uh, desire to take control of their own futures. Mm -hmm. And you need to have an economy for that. Right. You know, Nilo, you've been very generous with your time, but I, I do have one final question. And it's a question that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast. And that is uh, for a book recommendation. I have a little something I, I call the Flux Capacitor Book Club, where I gather all the recommendations, uh, kind of a reading list for, uh, for the listener. Uh, and so uh, is there a book that you would recommend uh, to, uh, to the listener to add to our, uh, to our book club? You know, there, there are many... Uh different books that are good out there. I think, you know, for um, uh, diving into some of these issues, I think, you know, um, a lot of people need to have a better understanding of, of the limitations that are put on, uh, on First Nations because of things like the Indian Act. And certainly right. Bob Joseph's book, 21 Things I Didn't Know About the Indian Act. Uh -huh. uh, is 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 a good read. Um, you know, there are other Indigenous authors out there that, um, you know, provide a, a very good perspective on things. Um, I, I, I'm currently, uh, currently reading a, a book called At the Bridge, um, mm -hmm. done by Wendy Wickware, uh, that talks about um, J James Tate and, and the, the, the early days of uh, colonization in British Columbia and how uh, he was able to uh, assist um, Indigenous people in in having a voice uh, in Ottawa and elsewhere on, on those concerns. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some of what happened, you know, back in those days, still very much relevant to the challenges that our members face today. Right. And, you know, um, those those are the two that just, you know, come to mind at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of good 
um, reading material out there and, uh, you know, developing a broader understanding of uh, the issues that, uh, that our members face. And they are national issues because they affect yeah. um, a lot of things that uh, Canada is trying to get done. Yeah. Um, so you can never go wrong by furthering the information that you have. And, and certainly, uh, certainly reading is a good way to do that. Spectacular. Uh, so two additions that we'll add to, to our book club list. 21 things I didn't know about the Indian Act and at the bridge. Fantastic. Nilo, great to, great to chat. I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the podcast. And, uh, and I look forward to, to, the, to the forum again next year. This year, it was, a, it was a terrific event. And I look forward to participating again next year. I, th thanks, Francis. I, I'd also be remiss, of course, if I didn't take the opportunity to advise your listeners that uh, they may want to check out our website and, yep. and read through our resources section at uh, fnmpc.ca. Uh, there are some technical papers mm -hmm. on our website that are also worth reading. Terrific. We will put a, a link to your website on the show page. Excellent. Neil, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. I hope you're enjoying these conversations. Please take the time to rate the podcast, then we welcome your comments and what you're hearing. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca, including links for this episode on the show page. And while you're there, check out the Book Club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future episodes of The Flux Capacitor, and let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.